Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. It's 30 with Murdy with your host, Sweeney Murdy. Welcome back, everyone. Hope you enjoyed our last episode, which was a look back at Mickey Mantle's 500th home run on the 50th anniversary of that milestone. If you haven't heard it yet, go back and check it out, please. Some wonderful stories there from people who were there that day at Yankee Stadium to celebrate Mantle's achievement. This week, we return to our interview format, and this one's a real treat for me. Gene Monahan was the head athletic trainer for the Yankees from 1973 to 2011. Gino, as he's affectionately known to all, is as responsible for all those championships in the 70s, 90s, and 2000s as anyone else in uniform. Getting players through the 162-game grind and all those, all those Octobers isn't easy, and Gino was and still is beloved by the players he served. This conversation includes stories of how he got started from being a Yankees bat boy in Fort Lauderdale in the early 60s to becoming George Steinbrenner's first and only head athletic trainer. That's not an easy feat. Gino had a very public battle with cancer that culminated with a very emotional day in 2010 when the Yankees were awarded their world championship rings from the year before. He stayed on as head trainer until 2011 and now works part-time in North Carolina with the Hendricks Racing Team. It's a natural fit for the crazed NASCAR fan that he is. You're going to hear stories about the boss, Thurman Munson, Derek Jeter, and more. Gino is a walking Yankees history lesson and one of the kindest men you'll ever meet. It's hard to find anyone more universally loved or respected around the Yankees organization than Gene Monahan. Speaking by phone from his home in North Carolina, it was my honor to have Gino spend 30 with Murdy. What can you tell me about the first baseball game you ever went to? The first baseball game I ever went to. That's an interesting question. I've got to say, I was really young. Our family was from a little suburb of Pittsburgh, and I think my dad took me to a Pittsburgh Pirate game, and I got to say it was around 1949, and I believe Ralph Kiner was uh, was with the Pirates. He was he was the big star then, and. Uh, it was a night game, and I was enthralled by the lights and the green grass and all that stuff. It just took me by surprise because my dad just, you know, started me into baseball and being a fan at that young age, about four or five years old. And from then on, it was just, you know, fell in love with the game. Did you grow up a Pirates fan? I did. I grew up a Pirate fan, and we moved to Florida uh, from that Pittsburgh area because my uh Back in those days in Pittsburgh, it was a little tough with the steel mills and the smog. I mean, I'd go to school and come home for lunch at noontime, and it was like 9 o'clock at night. Mm. And we had a little asthma in the family. So we, our family and some other members of our close family moved all to South Florida, Fort Lauderdale area. And uh, that's actually where I grew up. But uh, I loved the game. I loved the Pirates. I thought they were great and knew all the numbers and the names and everything. And the game stuck with me, and I became a fan, I, as I said, at that young age. But uh, as, as time moved forward and everything, the 60 Pirates were my favorite team of all time until, uh, of course, I hooked up with the Yankees. <laughs> but uh, they were always my guys. I loved them. 
How how weird was that for you over the years as you got to know guys like, you know, uh, any of the guys who were on the 60 team, like Bobby Richardson or Roger Maris, and through the course of your, your career, you get to know all these guys, and yet your favorite team is the one that broke their hearts. Yes, that's true. Uh, it's kind of ironic. Uh, it's, it's kind of a neat story. It really is when, you, when I think about it, when I reflect now at, at an older age and I go back and think about it, they're great memories. I have a plaque up here in my home here in North Carolina with the, with the 60 Pirates. It's, it's in part of this little memorabilia room we have uh, with the TV and all that stuff upstairs. And uh, uh, I remember those guys. I'll tell you one of the, one of the great things about that, uh, and we talked about them as I got to intern and, and learn uh, through the early 60s with the Yankees of those times. I got to meet those guys, and we'd talk about that series and stuff uh, with, with, you know, Yogi and Kubek and all them mm-hmm. guys, Blanchard. Uh, it was really cool. But um, one of the really, really great things about it was Bill Burden ended up being our manager. Right. Uh, and I was his trainer when we were over at uh, playing over at Shea Stadium when they were remodeling the old ballpark. And, boy, was that a thrill and a half. And to get to know him, and we got, a, a, obviously, a great relationship together and became really, really great friends, it was uh, – it was a dream come true, and, and I re- look back and reflect on it. I think, my goodness, that's full circle. If anybody was, wow, fantastic! I, um, I'm wondering what you remember about your uh, your your first affiliation with the Yankees. Started as a bat boy in '62. Is that right? Yes, I was a I was a bat boy in my senior high school with the Fort Lauderdale Yankees, which was a Class D team. Uh, the Yankees moved their spring training headquarters to Fort Lauderdale in '62. And uh, I uh, wrote a letter to uh, Mr. Dan Topping Jr., who was the general manager, the young young fellow general manager of the team, uh, inquiring about, you know, you need a kid to run around and chase balls and bats down. And uh, he called me up one day, and they, they interviewed me and hired me. And I, that's that started the whole deal. And they had an elderly clubhouse guy, and he kind of, like, had enough of it halfway through the season in early August. And, he couldn't take those young whippersnappers anymore. So they, I said, listen, do you think you can handle the clubhouse too? And I said, sure. So that started it and it worked out really well. And I came back to spring training next year as a, as an intern at the, with the big league club. You know, they asked me if I wanted to learn how to be a trainer. And I said, are you kidding me? I, of course I would. So how did you, how did you end up going from, from Fort Lauderdale to Indiana university and, and following the whole route to becoming a trainer? Well, I realized, uh, after you know, back back in those days, uh, at the minor league level, you know, athletic trainers, athletic trainers were bus drivers and guys that made the soup and swept out the clubhouse <laughs> and cleaned the shoes and wiped down the bats and kept track of the baseballs, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but I realized uh, at a young age then, uh, and I met some guys in the league who were who were athletic trainers as well who had educations uh, that I needed a formal education. And the, the gentleman, Steve Moore, who was the uh, athletic trainer at the Miami Marlins, said, what about Indiana? You know, that's where I assist, and I, I work there, and I do this in the summer. And we're a poor family, and we didn't have any money. And I was I would have been an out-of-state student, so I had to get some help. And took out a bunch of loans and actually went up there in, uh, in the, uh, the fall semester of 1965, I believe it was, and uh, from my double-A team job after the season ended in uh, Columbus, uh, Georgia. And I, I did my three and a half, four years up at Indiana. And when I graduated, I, I had a minor league job all those years at school waiting for me at double A, went from Columbus to Binghamton and so forth. But when I graduated, uh, they moved me up to triple A, up to uh, 
to uh, Syracuse, New York. I spent four years there, and that was the Vietnam era, so I enlisted and all that stuff. So we did the Army thing as well. So I was a pretty busy young man, but uh, the four years at Syracuse were fabulous, prepared me for the big leagues, and lo and behold, in the winter of 72, they called me up. Yeah, and, and your era coincided with George Steinbrenner, right? His first year was your first year. Exactly. When he purchased the team, he got his people together and he purchased the team. Uh, we were just like uh, two meteors that collided. And uh, <laughs> he was in my lap and I was in his lap, and there we were, and we got to learn each other. And, uh, boy, I tell you, what, it wasn't easy because I wasn't used to that kind of fireball kind of guy in ownership. He was a, You talk about hands-on. He was hands-on. Yeah. But, fab, but he was fabulous. He was tremendous. And uh, it took several years uh, and a few uh, – unofficial firings but we we kept hanging in there together and it became a tremendous relationship i'll never forget the wonderful times uh and i'll never forget the tough times but those tough times taught us an awful lot it taught us both a lot a lot of stuff and uh dealings with coaches and players and and media and people uh, he was a, he was an inspiration and uh I, I i cherish that forever yeah you know you you started to answer one of my questions was how many times do you think you were fired during the course of your job because you you were hired in 73 you did this up until you know uh, just only a few years ago when you retired but uh, how many times do you think george fired you over the years i usually tell people it was about four uh i i, I remember a couple a couple of them and uh i remember one year i said uh and it was a pretty decent season, and I had said to the to, to him up in the office one day, he had called me up there for something in the winter, and I gave him, the, you know, as good as an answer I could give, and, you know, he was he was in one of those rare moods, and he was pounding pretty good, and I was uh, holding my own, and at the end, I said, well, I, now is better time as any. I said, listen, uh, boss, I, I kind of like to talk to you about next year a little bit, and he looked up from his papers, and he said, frankly, Gene, I didn't. Wasn't planning on having you back. <laughs> so I said, oh, well, I better run downstairs. I got some stuff waiting for me. And, but we worked it out a couple of days later. But, uh, yeah, there was three or four times there where it was, uh, yeah, you're gone. I got to get somebody else in here. Uh, but I just kept showing up for work the next day. And when the phone rang and it was him on the other end, I just figured I was back. So. <laughs> I just kept on going. It was it was quite a quite a journey. And, and what was it? Was it because players were getting hurt and you were being blamed for it? Well, not so much that, but we we you know every club goes through these things. I yeah. you know I know the Mets presently now are yeah. having one of those years. It's just a really tough deal, and and it happens. And there's nobody really to blame. And there's there's you know but. You know, sometimes you got to look around and, and point fingers at something. And all was conditioning. And back then, we were just embarking on strength coaches and so forth. So mm-hmm. I took the brunt of the conditioning and brunt of getting hit with pitches and guys pulling hamstrings and so forth. But it, it was it was one of those deals. And um, you know, with him, with Mr. Steinbrenner, you needed you needed to be sharp with answers. And if you didn't have an answer, you had to be uh, you had to be assertive and, and say, "Look, boss." I don't know the answer to that question, but I'll have it for you by tomorrow morning and mm. so forth. And he respected that, and he respected honesty, and he, he wanted you to be straight. So that, that worked out. But by and large, to answer your question, it, 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 it coincided a lot with hard times. But, hey, you know, he learned, too, over the years, as well as everybody does in this game, that you have your peaks and valleys, and it all worked out. How did, how did you have to adjust over the years? Because, I mean, you mentioned what some of the responsibilities of an athletic trainer were early in your career. You know, by the end, there are a lot of, you know, players take 
their their uh, body and their conditioning uh, all year round now very seriously. How did what you do change, and what are your what are your views on on how players are are physically uh, shaped today? That, that's a, that's a very good point. Uh, years ago, when I first started, uh, even at the, well, especially at the major league level, uh, most all players had winter jobs, yeah. and they had things they had to do, and they would come to camp to get in shape. And nowadays, they come to camp in shape. You better be in shape when you get to camp. Yeah, uh, that first two or three days, you you you're just gliding. In fact, it's a it's such a a, a procedure that uh, most of the work early in camp is lighter than what most of the guys have been doing nowadays. So you have to change with those times. Uh, methods of treating injuries uh, changed over the years. Sports medicine has grown dramatically. Mm-hmm. Uh, modalities, equipment we use have changed. You have to stay up to date with that. Uh, the PBATs, the Professional Baseball Athletic Trainer Society, insist on education uh, of uh, ourselves, our minor league players, and our minor league athletic trainers, and everybody connected with the team and you have to stay up with education and stay up with the times. There's so many new things going on now and conditioning. We all have conditioning staffs now. It's not just one guy. Mm -hmm. There's very, very many facets of that. And the athletic trainer has to be well versed on that and and be on page with those guys because they just don't work down the hall and they're separated from you. It's a, it's a, it's a family uh, affair and uh, you have to have your head on straight when it comes to all that stuff. So there's, an awful lot going on these days. I, I wonder what your how your relationship with players changed over the years, Gino. Because you know when you first started in '73, uh, you're in with a group like Bobby Mercer and Thurman Munson, and these guys are you know uh, kind of around your age and your contemporaries. And I have a feeling it was more brotherly. And then as you got older, you know, we we just got done with a ceremony uh, honoring Derek Jeter, which you were there and a part of. And you saw all these players that I think you were more fatherly towards. How how did that uh, how did uh, how did that all develop for you? Well, it was it was a kind of a metamorphosis and stuff, as, as you mentioned, as you go on in life and grow older, the uh, the guys you had, uh, you started out, the guys were a lot older than you. And there was a lot, an awful lot of respect all the way through at, at all levels. However, back then, the, the guys were teaching me things. And then as you go with your contemporaries and through, you go through life together, and then you get a little older, a lot older, and then the young guys coming up, you've got a lot of experience that you can you can work with and work on. You can go back and help these guys out with, and you've got a tremendous amount of stories. It'd be it would be an unusual day if you didn't have three or four guys just come to the training room and sit down and try to listen to some of the stories that hmm. happened years ago while you're working on guys. And guys would migrate, and they would learn, and you, you could catch their ears and watch them, and they would pick up a lot of things. And that's how they learned it. They just don't come to the ballpark, put their stuff on, go out and play or work out. They would end up uh, trying to learn some of the ins and outs of you know how to act and how to be, and obviously – one of the greatest captains of the history of sports, Derek uh, Jeter, he was like that. I mean, he was a quiet leader, but when he would talk uh, or he would open up, whether it's in the training room or the clubhouse, guys would migrate towards his direction to overhear and become a part of. And that's what happened over the years when I got a little bit older. I imagine that is a pretty big responsibility then, especially with the Yankees, when you're talking about, I mean, you're not talking about passing on tradition of an expansion team from 20 years ago. Um, you are a link to history um, 
it seems like that's something that would be really cool to be a part of in that room as everybody's kind of talking about the different generations of things. That, that's true. In fact, uh, our head trainer now, Steve Donahue, has a little museum in the training room of, of equipment and pictures from the past. And guys will come in now, and, and you can go around the room in the athletic training room because we have a beautiful new stadium and a new brand-new training room now, and it's large. And they, and they can actually go through this and, and learn and, and, and be able to appreciate what has happened over the years and who these famous guys they've heard of. I mean, you got guys now that you bring names up from the 60s and 70s, and they've never heard of them. Yeah. So you bring them around, you show them, and you say, this is what happened then, and this is what happened then, and let's watch this video, let's check this out, check that out. And they're wide-eyed and bushy-tailed. I, I, I go to spring training in the spring, and they, they're they so kind to let me come down and, and work with the guys and, and kind of hang out. And, and you, you end up telling stories and sharing stories and sharing experiences, and you've got, you got the coaches and managers and guys that were your players. And now they're in charge, and it's kind of a neat thing. And sometimes, you know, they'll ask you to address the team, or they'll say, "Go ask Gino because he was here back <laughs> back when Babe Ruth was around, and all that kind of stuff." <laughs> and that always cracks me up. But uh, yeah, we we share a lot of stuff, and uh, that's that's part of the Yankee way, and why why the Steinbrenners have made it such a great family deal. Gino, I want to ask you about two captains that uh, that you were with. Uh, <clears throat> You know, nowadays we see just little clips of Thurman Munson, and and some of the clips are him, you know, just being banged up and crawling back to his position, or you know, just just shaking off whatever is bugging him, and it looks like he's in just writhing in pain, and he just goes back out there. What were your experiences with him in that regard, and the type of leader that he was? Yeah, that's that's the way Thurman was. Uh, that's the only way he knew how to play, and he was one of those guys that you 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 couldn't get out of the lineup. I mean. If he came in and, and day game after night game and he was told he wasn't playing, he'd, he'd get angry or he'd pout and he'd get mad and he'd get his box of uh, box of uh, cookies and a quart of milk and sit in the sauna and brood <laughs> till till somebody come in and said, "That's all right, never mind, you're playing." But yeah, he, he played with a lot of pain, and, and um, I'm not saying things are different today or they're better or they're worse. But uh, a guy running, laying around out there like that, and pulling himself up and hitching up his bridges to get back in that batter's box or back behind the plate, you know, a lot of times that he'd be taken out of the game. But uh, you had to, you had to yank him out. I mean, that's just the way he was. He led with fire. You know, he wasn't afraid to get in anybody's face, and that, that's the way he did it. And it worked for him. And and Mr. Steinbrenner made a wonderful choice in making him captain because he was he was a real leader. And uh, he, he knew what he was doing, and he knew the only way, just like Derek, the only way to play the game is to win. I mean, that's why we came out there. And that's what he instilled in all the younger guys as they came up. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, as we got through watching all the Jeter stuff, you know, one of the plays that we see over and over again in all the tributes is his dive into the stands against the Red Sox. And you are part of the picture there because you're racing out to get him and you're holding the towel up to his up to his face and he's bleeding and I want to know what you remember about that moment. Not, I mean, not what you saw on the field, but maybe as you were walking him off, and what happened after that, because that's kind of one of the iconic moments that we associate with Derek Jeter. The, uh, the you knew when he disappeared into the stands, something might be up. Uh, so we all got to the top step, and then there was a bunch of people trying to pull him out and get him out. That were kind of like waving us on. 
So I took off, and it just seemed like an eternal run. I couldn't get there fast mm. enough. But when I finally got there, he was he was coming out of the stands, and of course his face was dented in, and he had a couple of cuts under his eye, and he was a little bit uh, delirious there. Uh, and uh, you could see he was hurting. And uh, coming off the field, it was like, you know, we're going to take care of this. Everything's going to be okay. It was what a heck of a play you made there, buddy. Just having some conversation to get him back to the dugout. And all he kept saying back toward the dugout, I'm in there tomorrow. I'm in there tomorrow. I'm in there tomorrow. <laughs> and you're not taking me out of no game. I go, you're right. You're, you're darn right. You're going to be in there tomorrow. No problem. We'll get you fixed up. And by that time, we got back and he saw the doc and got him organized. And he was good. He came in the next day a little banged and bruised up. But first guy out for batting practice. I remember that he was there, um, you know, with with all the bruises, and it was at Shea Stadium against the Mets the next day, and there was no, you know, he said there was no way of taking him out of there. Did did you appreciate his leadership the same way you did maybe other guys that you saw? Because you mentioned, you know, Derek wasn't the most vocal type type of guy. No, he was quiet, uh, and but when he spoke, you know, everybody listened. A lot of guys listened. You know, if you were within earshot. Uh, quiet, well-mannered, mild-mannered, and, and very, very good. I remember one time I told this story the other night at his dinner that uh, he came into training room one day and he had a he had a bruised hand or a bruised ankle or something. I mean, it might have fall, followed the ball off his ankle or his shin. And I was working on some guys. We had a, we had a pretty good group in here. And he said, what, what, do, what do you want me to do with this? And I said, well, I'm a little tied up right now. I'll, give, I'll be about 10 minutes Let's uh, let's put that thing in a cold whirlpool, or we'll get some ice on there right now because it was just last night. Oh, I don't want to do that. And I said, Yeah, I think that's what we need to do. We we can't put heat on that. We'll put some ice on there. And I don't know about that. So finally, I said, Derek, you just got to do as you're told. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody erupted in laughter. And he laughed too, but he didn't much like that. <laughs> he kind of meandered out the door. He he didn't say much to me for a couple of days. <laughs> but we had a we had a big laugh over it, and to this day, when and Jorge's his best friend, yeah. Posada, and uh, to this day, when we're all together, every time Jorge will end up saying, "Derek, do what you're told, do what you're told," <laughs> and that would that would ignite him, and we'd all laugh. But uh, that was one of the few times I had to get on him a little bit, and it was a lot of fun. It was really great. But uh, he he was very very, uh, you know, when he said something, it mattered. You know, he's poignant. He, if he was going to say something to anybody about anything or you were a new guy and you wanted some direction, they'd give it to you privately and quietly and go about your business or he'd take you out to dinner and that'd be the end of it or that'd be the start of it. Uh, well, well respected and that stuff would fly through the clubhouse and everybody picked up on him. He was just, he was just there to win and that's why we come to the ballpark. And, uh, and to this day, that's, that was the attitude and still is. One of the moments that uh, revolved around a, uh, a great speech in the clubhouse wasn't any of the players. It was you. The story goes, in 2001, as the Yankees are getting ready to play the Diamondbacks in that emotional series, Game 7 is in Arizona, uh, yes. you stood up and gave a speech. What do you remember about that moment that compelled you to do it? What What did you tell them? I mean, everybody who was there talks about how just how inspiring it was. What do you remember about that? Well, the, the thing that I really remember the most about that particular day is, you know, it was game seven, and we had an early bus, and Mr. 
Mr. Torrey was on the on the bus, Joe Torrey, and we were walking in together through the runway. And he said something about, uh, oh, what I'm going to tell these guys tonight, you know, what do you think? I go, uh, Skip, we're going to be okay. <laughs> Just tell them to go out there and win. Just be, be the men you are and let's get this thing done, whatever, you know, I don't know. Mm-hmm. He looked over to me as we were walking in. He says, well, maybe I'll just have you talk to the team today. And we both laughed. <laughs> <laughs> so I just dismissed it. So, you know, we got the team ready, and then they went out for batting practice, and they did all the stuff. They're getting ready to come in, and I got to thinking, what, what if what if he wasn't kidding? Because I, I don't have anything. I don't have anything prepared for this group. I mean, I, I'm not going to be in that position. And he, he called the team together and, uh, he said, uh, Gino, the floor is yours. Listen up. Gino's got some stuff to say. And I went, what? <laughs> Come on, man. I know new Rodney here. So, uh, we, I looked down at the end of clubhouse and Zimmer's sitting there like, well, let's hear it, dude. <laughs> and, uh, oh boy. So I just started talking about some stuff and, you know, about, you know, what we're, not not necessarily up against, but what we're involved in. How, you know, everybody back home is, you know, rooting for us and watching us and caring about us and all that stuff. But uh, the main thing I told them right at the end was, uh, in my mind, in the mind of all the people in New York and around the country who are our fans and supporters, no matter what happens tonight, you guys are champions. And just look at each other, and you know you're champions. And you're champions in my heart, in my book. And that's just the way we play. So guys, you know, let's go do that. So we got done and they went out and Zimmer comes over and he's got tears in his eyes. Mm. He said, that was fantastic. I said, you are so full of garbage. <laughs> <laughs> and we laughed, we laughed and hugged and uh, it was kind of cool, but I, I was not ready. So I don't know, the good Lord must have been with me because it just worked out. It was kind of brief and got it done. Wish we could have won that game, but we came an inning short. Yeah, but uh, it was okay. It was good. And and do you remember how that feeling maybe changed for you after the way the game ended? Or you know that was that was a team that was going for four in a row, and you know, with all the winning they'd done, I remember being in that clubhouse and how how quiet it was. In that you know there was this team just wanted to keep winning, and it didn't matter that they had won four out of five or three in a row to that point. This one right. still hurt. Yeah, it did hurt, and. Uh... The guys all sat down in their spots and they were they were quiet and took a little bit of took a little bit of you know divining to to get the reality of everything together and it was a great effort and it was a it was a great great game and it was a great season uh, just fell a little short uh, and like Derek says if you don't win it all it's not a successful season but uh, you know the pain the pain was tough and I wish we could have you know done it but hey it, it was a learning experience. It was a maturing experience for a lot of the young guys and the older guys too. And I think it all worked out uh, as far as that goes. But that team and that group of men learned an awful lot from that. And, uh, you know, nothing's etched in stone and you got to work hard, both mentally and physically and emotionally for everything. And uh, we all just gradually got up and did what we had to do and hugged each other and went about our business. Uh, so I think it was basically a, a, a tremendous learning experience and sometimes uh that word l-o-s-e which i never use hmm. teaches you a lot of stuff and that it, it worked out that day 
I want to ask you about one of your, I guess I want to call it a responsibility because that's kind of what it seemed to be. But um, anytime a Yankee reached a particular milestone, whether it was a kid getting his first major league hit or somebody notching a big round number or passing a great uh, on an all-time list, the ball was thrown out of play and it was your job to market and neatly write on the ball what it represented, whether it was that first hit or milestone. How did that come about? Why was it your responsibility? And how did you, how seriously did you take that? Well, I took it very seriously. Uh, to answer your last question first, um, <clears throat> it just became a part of things. The uh, Joe Sores, who was the head trainer prior to my uh, embarking on the, that job in 1973, would used to do that on occasion. He would get the ball and he would bring it into the clubhouse, uh, a milestone ball or the ball get thrown out and he'd put it in the medical bag and give it to Pete Sheehy, our esteemed and tremendous clubhouse man. And Pete would write on the ball and do that stuff for the players. And, uh, we, you know, we would always use Pete because his handwriting was impeccable. It's gorgeous. He was fantastic. Um, not only with his handwriting, but his demeanor. He was a great guy. He loved me because I was Irish. Hmm. He was Irish. <laughs> he thought, he, he thought. Uh, well, the two of us were very, very close. He was a lot older than me, but uh, we were very, very close. Heck, in spring training, my mom and dad and myself would pick Pete up and go to church. Really? Together. Wow. Yeah, but he he, did, he was the guy that did that. And Joe Soares would bring the ball in, give it to, slip it to Pete. Pete would make the mental note. Pete would write on the ball and give it to the player a day or two later, and it was really cool. So I kind of picked up on that, and and then Pete got older, and and then uh, you know Pete passed away. So I just said, well, let me do it. So it it, it means something to these guys, you know. Guy gets a, a monumental hit or something, something fantastic happens, or pitches a no hitter or leads the team in something, and I just get the ball and. Heck, I'd make up stuff. I mean, like, well, that was a cool thing to have done. So I next day, I'd, the ball would be in his locker. Uh, you just write on it and put the date. And I can say right now, there's a bunch of baseballs around the country on somebody's mantle that, heck, you just, it helps them remember what they did and yeah. what they accomplished. Yeah. And uh, it came from Pete and Joe. And I just kept it doing it. Now Steve Donahue does the same thing. It's great. Uh, one of the things when it came time to close the old stadium, you were the guy that had a lot of stories and a lot of memories. But the 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 thing that you took from the old stadium has a lot of history behind it. I want to know the the scale that Wade measured players uh, going back decades. Uh, that's what you wanted because that was in the trainer's room. Uh, is it? No, I know you brought it over to the stadium. Is it in your house now? What what made you want to get that? And where is it? Sweeney, you really do your homework, man. <laughs> the, uh, we had two of them. They were like butcher scales, big scales, big metal scales, made by a company called Fairbanks. And I think they were from the meat district downtown or something. But they, they were there since probably the 40s, the 1940s or early 50s. We had two, one in the visitor's clubhouse and one in our clubhouse. And in the move, the one at the visitor's clubhouse somehow got lost. Mm. or whatever but we kept ours and we took it to Shea and we used it and you, you mean from the original stadium back in 73 is what you're talking about so in that, yeah, in that move. okay and then we brought the scale back to the new stadium and we kept the scale there 
and we keep polishing it and keep calibrating it and keep working it. The scale's still there. We still weigh in on that scale. Wow. Or they weigh in on that scale. And each year, each each summer when I go up to visit, old-timers there, so forth, I check that scale out and give it a little pat and make sure it's clean <laughs> and shiny, and you can still read it, but the players still weigh in on it. It's a piece of history, and we love that kind of stuff with the Yanks. So it's still there. I do not. I do not have the scale. Okay. That scale belongs to the Yankees, and it's a beauty, and we still use it. What's the thing that you kind of cherish the most that you took from the stadium or from your days that's in your house right now? What do you like? Well, I basically took nothing except you know clothing and stuff when I had had to retire, and after I got ill and the strength levels weren't there, I I tried a few year and a half and. It was all right, but <clears throat> I knew that uh, they, you know, they really needed somebody that had the energy and the stamina to give it uh, 100%, you know, 18 hours a day. So uh, when it, when I left, they they went over, they went crazy with all this, all these silly accolades and stuff that meant so much to me. Hmm. Uh, and Steve Donahue, my assistant for 26 plus years, who now is the head athletic trainer. Uh, when the stadium, we went into the new stadium, uh, they, they put over the lockers a, a facade over everybody's locker and a, a white facade. I'm looking at it right now. It's up yeah. here in my, uh, my <clears throat> man cave type room upstairs here in my house. Yeah. We put it over the window, uh, in the area here. And it's, it means an awful lot to me because every time I look at it, I think of the facade at Yankee Stadium. And, you know, I don't have to, with all the stuff that hangs around and pictures and little remembrances, I just looked at that thing and think about my locker and I think about the ballpark and it makes you warm inside and hmm. makes you know you had a second home, you had a second family. And that thing that Steve gave me means everything to me. And I'll, I'll, I'll cherish that forever. You know, there's some pictures around and uh, as I look around, there's a couple things that really mean a lot to me as well. The Red Sox guys, the, uh, guys at Fenway, the, the uh, visiting clubhouse guy, um, Tommy McLaughlin. Mm-hmm. He had the guy uh, in the scoreboard give me a section of the things that gets, they slide down in that scoreboard in left field at Fenway Park. Wow. They put a big 49 on it, and they got it framed for me. And that's from, a, that's from a visiting team, a place I used to love to go and still do. And uh, it's a piece of Fenway Park here in our house, and I love it. I really do. Uh, and Mariano uh, took a jersey and wrote a letter on it and framed it up. We framed it up, and it sits here as cornerstone piece. It just means a lot to me, the stuff that he said on there about helping him out and helping with him become the guy he is, which I had very little to do with, but <laughs> he's very appreciative, and he's just a very super person, and all the guys. But uh, I think of all the stuff... Uh, Besides the replica World Series victory trophies and stuff like that, I, I really like that facade because it reminds me of my second home. The uh, ring ceremony in 2010, I know, is very emotional for you because of what you went through personally to get there. What do you remember about that moment? Well, <laughs> the, the, the thing I remember most about that particular moment is we're all standing out there and they're doing the ring ceremony. I say, well... First guy, he said, you're, you're going to have to be first. So, okay, so I'll go out there, and then I'll run and go down the first baseline, and everybody will come out. It, it, it's, you know, chokes me up to this day, but uh, went out there, and it was 
greeted by the Steinbrenners and everybody, and they, you know, it was it's a wonderful thing. And I jogged on over as best I could over to first base, and I turned around, and nobody else was coming out. Mm. I just stood there, and I go, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> and uh, Jorge just stood up in front of the dugout and said, everybody stay back, and he started clapping. And uh, the stadium went nuts, and it was kind of neat. It meant a lot to me uh, coming back from that journey and uh, working that, working through that stuff. But it meant a lot, and I, I just... I felt really alone out there by myself, hmm. but uh, I actually felt the warmth of the entire city as well. So it was kind of a mixed emotion deal, but it meant the world. And uh, I guess what I remember most is Jorge taking charge there and uh, and thinking, boy, I got a lot of wonderful people around me, like 35,000 of them. So <laughs> it was pretty cool and uh, it meant, meant the world to me. And I think about it every day. How's your health now, Gino? Good. I'm good. Uh, as you probably can tell, I lose my voice when I talk too much, so I don't mm. usually try to talk too much anymore. Mm. But uh, uh, throat and neck cancer is tough. Uh, I do all I can to help spearhead those people going through that journey. Uh, my energy levels are not what they were, but I still have a job and I'm working part-time a little bit in racing. So I'm doing good with that. My health's pretty darn good. Uh, I get up with some energy and I go through the day all right. And uh, when it's nine nine thirty at night, I'm ready for the rack instead of the third <laughs> inning. But, uh, but I'm good. I'm very good. Thank you. And Hendrick Sports Management is where you're doing your part time stuff. I you you I read somewhere where you compare Jimmy Johnson to Derek Jeter. You see those guys as similar, huh? Yeah, they are. They're uh, quiet leaders with a lot of lot of status, a lot of stature, and carry themselves very well. Uh, but they carry themselves very friendly. And most importantly, they're very kind uh, to everyone else. And uh, that means a lot to everyone else. And that's the kind of guys they are. Uh, I remember years and years ago uh, when Jimmy was just starting out, uh, he came to the stadium, the old ballpark. And uh, any time a racing person would come around because they knew I liked racing, they'd say, oh, take him down to the training room. <laughs> Introduce him to Gene because he'll take care of him. And he likes those guys. So they brought him down, and uh, he was very young. Didn't I mean he might have grown a little bit? But he was very skinny, young fella, nice guy. And uh, we talked around. I took him around a little bit. We took a picture. They still have the picture here at home. And he wrote on it, uh, "Thanks for all the fun, <laughs> Jimmy Johnson." And we we talk about it and laugh about it from time to time, especially in Victory Lane. And that's a lot of fun when he wins the race. We're all there, so it's kind of neat. But uh, yeah, he and Derek are two of a kind. Uh, listen, this has been phenomenal getting to hear some of your stories and I apologize for taxing your voice so much. Uh, I hope, uh, I hope it wasn't too much for you, but it's really great talking to you, hearing from you and hearing some of these stories. I hope you get a chance to rest now. I hope I didn't ruin the rest of your day. Uh, thank you for taking so much time for us, uh, Gino. Well, Sweeney, as I said, and I thank you from the heart, uh, you really do your homework. Uh, you're, you're one of them really good guys around the clubhouse. I can't wait to see you in spring training or in New York. And it's always a lot of fun uh, hooking up with you. And I, I thank you from the heart for this opportunity. And it was, it was great. And I wish you nothing but the best in, in, in your wonderful career. And uh, we'll be uh, running at each other, I'm sure, next month up in New York at the Old Timers. I'll repeat what I told you at the beginning of this. You would be hard-pressed to find anyone more universally loved and respected around the Yankees organization 
than Gene Monahan. He was in attendance just last week at the Derek Jeter ceremonies and would only be fitting if one day soon we see Gene Monahan honored in Monument Park as well. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. You can go back and find all our past episodes on WFAN.com as well as Play.it and iTunes where you can subscribe for free. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.